It has been a minute since I put out an episode. I imagine these were going to be a lot more frequent when I started, but the problem is I've got a bunch of stuff going on that I'm just as excited about as I am about the podcast. But I'm glad to be getting back into it. I think there's probably going to be two styles of episodes. One will be the conversational book club style, like the first episode. The other will be closer to what the blog is, which is a couple of minutes of thoughts about whatever it is I'm reading these days. Which brings us to today, The World in Disarray by Richard Haas. I loved this book. It's one of my favorites in 2021. For a long time, I've been looking for something on the history of the Cold War. I know about some things, like mutually assured destruction was when if the US and the Soviet Union got into a conflict, there wouldn't be a winner. It would be destruction on both sides. Mutually assured destruction. I know a little bit about other events like the wars in Vietnam and Korea and the Cuban Missile Crisis. But I didn't have the overarching story that connected all these. But that story always seemed important because the Cold War shaped the world I was born into. Literally, it ended in 1991, the year I was born. Luckily for me, I was in a thrift store and happened to pick up The World in Disarray. Here was a book, for $3, that was on this exact topic and so much more. Richard's goal in writing is to educate readers on international order, foreign policy, and historical context. And if you know me, you know that sentence got more exciting as it went on. He has a long career as a diplomat, ambassador, special envoy to Northern Ireland, and is currently the president of the Council on Foreign Relations, a nonpartisan policy think tank. This book is about world order, which is how countries relate to one another. World order answers the question, what are the norms and policies that govern how states interact? This is different than the idea of one world order, where there's like one government controlling everything. World order is putting a name to the dynamics that are already in play. And the hope is that those dynamics can be improved. As world order increases, war should decrease. Human rights should be more protected. And countries should collaborate more on common problems like terrorism and climate change. The first part of the book is about the Westphalian order, which started in 1648. Under this system, the government of a country can do whatever it wants within their own borders and other countries should not interfere with it. The point is that a state is completely sovereign within their own borders. While this was a new idea at the time, today it's the status quo. I mean, we don't question a government's legal authority within their own country. This makes a lot of sense in theory, but the reality is a bit more complex. A good example is China's genocide of the Uyghurs. When China talks about it, they say these are quote-unquote internal issues and that other countries should not interfere. What they're doing is appealing to this Westphalian system where they're unquestionably sovereign within their own borders. But obviously, genocide's not okay, so there's a debate going on, and part of that debate is how accountable a government should be for their actions. World order in the first part of the 20th century was defined by two world wars, which is to say, not much order. The latter half of the 20th century was defined by the Cold War, which provided a surprising amount of order. Although it could have broken down at any time, the US and the Soviet Union being locked in a conflict in which neither one could get the advantage provided a check on each other. So the Cold War ended up being an ideological one more than anything else. 
Countries across the world aligned with either one side or the other. Capitalist countries became known as first world. Communist countries were called second world. And countries that didn't choose a side became known as, wait for it, third world countries. This underscores the point I made at the beginning. Even the words we use today are based in a historical context, and it feels important to know that context. The Korean War, the Vietnam War, the Cuban Missile Crisis. These were all venues where the Cold War was playing out. Sometimes we won, sometimes we lost. The Cold War ended in 1991 with the collapse of the Soviet Union. The result of this is that world order, for a time, became based around U.S. supremacy. And even now, we're watching that period taper off and a shift is occurring with the rise of China and other regional powers. Even though our influence abroad is changing, the U.S. still has a ton of influence. And I think as Americans, we don't see that as much. When the president speaks out about the genocide in China or about Alexei Navalny being jailed, it helps set the tone globally of what behaviors are okay and not okay. The U.S. has a responsibility to continue to provide stability, leadership, guidance. If we don't, it will create a power vacuum, and we can't trust other countries to protect our interests or promote the things that we value. The World in Disarray then goes into a section about the current issues facing the world. Many are listed, like terrorism, cybersecurity, global warming. Each of these has its own ways it impacts the world and potential solutions to it. One that stood out to me was nuclear proliferation. The term nuclear proliferation means that nuclear arms should not proliferate beyond the nine that have them now. The US, the UK, Russia, China, India, France, Pakistan, Israel, and North Korea. And really, we're not even comfortable with North Korea having them. Nuclear arms are a threat to the world because of the disorder that they could create. Any nuclear war would be catastrophic, and as more countries have those kinds of weapons, that likelihood increases. Potentially worse would be if a terrorist organization was able to get a hold of one. I really enjoy the background this book gave because it provides a context to the discussions on North Korea and Iran. I don't feel like I have to rely on a news article to know what to think about these issues anymore. Speaking of political opinions, I want to say here, I don't have a political party. Man, that feels good to say. I was a Republican, but I got tired of being called a rhino, Republican in name only. So I said to myself, that's fine. I'll just drop the name. But something unexpected happened. I don't feel a pressure to have a certain opinion or conform to any party platform. And since then, my opinion started falling all over the place. All that to say, we're not going to agree all the time, and I'm not trying to change anyone's mind anyway. Given my non-political party, I liked the world in disarray because it gave a great non-partisan lens to view the world through. It helped me better understand how international relations work and why things like NATO, the UN, and NAFTA are important. Even the kinds of news articles I read have shifted. I find myself glancing over the headlines from other regions of the world, like about the coup in Burma or the Russian military buildup in Ukraine. For me, the foreign policy piece is an important one to consider. By bringing those considerations into political opinions, it helps round out the picture of what the impact of a policy will be, both here and abroad. All in all, not a bad deal for three bucks.